Maria, and welcome to Hiding Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan, and with me is Giancarlo Latta, who is a violinist in the Argus Quartet based in New York City. He is also a member of Kinetic, the conductorless ensemble in Houston, Texas, and is part of the violin-piano duo Escape Velocity in New York City. In addition to all of that, he is also a composer, and his works have been premiered by Kinetic and violinist Paul Cantor, among others. And we'll be talking about his love for reading and a renewed interest in writing. Welcome, Giancarlo. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Giancarlo, I really only got to know you because of Kinetic. You are one of those people that I met through that ensemble when I first started at Rice University, and I always wasn't sure what you thought of me. And then there was one day that you like made a joke at me, and I was like, oh, okay, we're okay. We're cool. <laughs> I think I felt the same way, actually. Oh, really? Me. Yeah. I actually get that a lot. That I think often people have told me that I come off that way or that they're not sure what, they, what I'm thinking of them. Uh-huh. At first, some of my best friends now have these stories of the first two or three months we knew each other, they thought I hated them. And I just don't, it just, I just, it just doesn't register. <laughs> I think I always assume that the other person doesn't have any anxiety about the relationship or the friendship and that I'm the only one with the anxiety. And <laughs> so then I think, oh, they must not, you know, they must hate me or they must not like me. And right, right, right. In reality, we're just sort of doing that to each other. And then finally, there's with everybody, there's always inevitably a moment where it clicks and we're like, oh, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> We've actually been good this whole time. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. funny. And actually, once that happened for us, it was like some of my fond memories are I like to sit sort of in the back of the ensemble so I can kind of make yeah. little looks to people <laughs> during rehearsal and, you know, and sort of to say, like, did you see that? Did you hear what that person said? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so sometimes I like you're one of my point people to look at to be like, did John Carlo get that joke? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like in a lot of kinetic cycles, we've always had like a really we've either been physically nearby or had a really good line of sight. So right. Yeah, you're, and I feel like we also react similarly to the yeah, same things. So yeah, I like, think so. <laughs> somebody will say something and I'll be like, oh my God, did Patty, did did Patty catch that? that? <laughs> <laughs> I think every year with Kinetic is just something great. And I wish that whatever happens through COVID, that it will, it's a resilient ensemble, which is great. And we're now both people that have to travel back to that ensemble to Houston every time right. that we perform. And I know that my quartet is really flexible with that. Argus, I assume, is also really willing to have you come down as well, right? Yeah, yeah. And, in Argus, we try to, and it sounds like in your quartet too, we try to be supportive of, you know, the other things that people are doing because we feel like it benefits us all to have people, you know, our other violinist will go spend a week with a far cry and come back and right. all of that work. Only, it's, yeah, it's like doing research. what we do. Yeah, exactly. So I actually, since I have joined Argus, I haven't had a chance to go because we had concerts that conflicted, unfortunately. But once we know what things are going to look like after COVID, I'm, I'm really excited to play with Kinetic again. Yeah, it's like a little family that I miss. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Can I talk a little bit about your audition prep for yeah. Argus? Because that was going to be kind of my story about you. Oh, that was going to be my story about you. Oh, no. Story. Okay. But, but good. Well, let's talk about it. Yeah, let's let's have yeah. both perspectives here. So I had maybe been with the Artaria String Quartet for a year or two or something like that. And just so people know, auditioning for a string quartet or any chamber ensemble is a lot different than the approach to orchestral auditions. Orchestral auditions are typically posted in the union paper, music union paper. It's sort of accessible. Anyone can sign up or you send, at least you send a resume and the orchestra decide if that's qualifying for them or not. And it's a pretty
pretty clear path to that chair in the orchestra that you could possibly win. With chamber music, with string quartets, it's much different. It's a lot more about sort of who you know and what circles you got to know these people and maybe mentors that fostered you to one direction or another in the world. So it's a lot more nebulous. So I had gone through a couple of those experiences and you were coming up as a potential for the Argus Quartet. I just felt like instant mama bear. Like I was like... (laughs) Which I greatly appreciated. So, you know, this was totally new. And like you said, well, I had taken one orchestra audition, actually just like, you know, six weeks or a month before I got this email asking if I would consider auditioning for Argus. And the two experiences were like night and day. But I think I was ready for something different because I had had this experience auditioning for an orchestra and... You know, of course, everybody has horror stories about orchestra auditions. Yes. And, you know, I was complaining and complaining about how miserable this whole process was. And everybody was like, well, of course, you know, what were you expecting? This was your first orchestra audition. And I think I always knew that my heart wasn't really in it, even though I practiced a ton and really... And Rice is a kind of university that, or the Shepherd School especially, is highly fostering people who are going into the orchestral route. And they're really set up well to do that. Right. And I think for me too, it was, you know, because I did both my undergrad and my master's at Rice, that was really ingrained. But I always felt a little resistance to that while I was there. Of course, to be playing in that orchestra and at that school with Larry Ratcliffe and with all of the wonderful faculty and colleagues, you know, orchestra was never really my main interest but I always said like well if I'm gonna be doing it I might as well do that place yeah totally right and some of my best memories of rice and of orchestra concerts in general are from from that orchestra yeah but while I was doing those two degrees you know in high school chamber music was like my main interest I didn't have a lot of experience playing in orchestras and throughout middle and high school I always had a quartet I was lucky to have friends who were at a similar level and we all were passionate about chamber music and Ann Arbor which is where I grew up had a wonderful wonderful, wonderful chamber music festival, Phoenix Fest, which takes place every Memorial Day weekend. And eventually they started doing one in the summer as well. It's run by Kate Bolkowski, who is just a wonderful teacher and person and musician and really like instilled this great love of chamber music in so many students, myself included. But while I was at Rice, and Rice also has a wonderful chamber music program, Norman Fisher, James Dunham, the whole faculty, it's just great. But I think there was so much of the orchestra attitude there that, you know, chamber music was always still a treat, but it wasn't the center of what I was doing in the way that it was as I was growing up in high school. And- right. I mean, that's where I think Kinetic kind of filled that shoot because I mean, obviously I felt similarly, but Kinetic ended up being kind of that placeholder. In addition to the chamber music that we were doing for our degrees, Kinetic was fulfilling that kind of need, at least for me. I feel like in some ways an ensemble like Kinetic could only come out of a place like Rice specifically because sure. there is that emphasis on orchestra as well. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, there are obviously amazing groups of Far Cry, East Coast Chamber Orchestra, incredible conductorless ensembles. But I think Kinetic is really unique because so many of its members have gone through the Rice Orchestra program and this really chamber music oriented way of orchestral playing. Totally. Orchestrally oriented way of chamber music playing that is just this really interesting fusion. Yep. Yeah. 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 Totally. But we were talking about Argus. <laughs> oh my God. I, like, this is literally what I do. It's like, some Subject me, like <laughs> in the corner. I feel like this podcast is less about the content and more about the tangents. <laughs> like, yeah, no, because the tangents end tangent. up being. <laughs> but in any case, you're saying long story short. <laughs> Very long story short. When I had this opportunity to audition for Argus, it was coming off the heels of six years of 
orchestral training. Orchestral training and a particularly unpleasant first orchestra audition that I had taken, in spite of how pleasant much of the training for it was. But when I reached out to you, I knew that you had gone through similar experiences. And I, I think at Rice, when I was preparing excerpts for this orchestra audition, I could go into the practice room next door and whoever was there would know, you know, would have played that excerpt 10 times in 10 auditions and would be able to answer any question I had. But I realized I maybe didn't have as many immediate resources aside from the wonderful faculty, of course, who I maybe wasn't initially inclined to approach. Sure. Um, I didn't have as many resources for, you know, people who had gone through this string quartet audition process. I knew it would be different, but I didn't really know how. So I think, you know, when I reached out to you, I were, I mean, it was, it was super helpful and it really, I think, transformed my whole preparation. Oh, wow. Well, I was going to say, because I don't know. I mean, maybe a lot of it was just, you know, my own opinions or whatever and not necessarily useful, but. Well, Well, I think what was really helpful was that, you know, in orchestra, auditions were so taught to fit this mold, right? Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that you really tried to make clear in all of these long conversations playing together was that every quartet is totally different, which, you know, you know, intellectually, but when you're prepared for these orchestra auditions, you're like, how can I fit the mold? And with the quartet, it's actually more a question of how can I be adaptable? Right. Um, Not only adaptable musically, but also adaptable in the administrative side, in the marketing side, in other business aspects. And I think that's where a lot of times people might not connect those dots together about what it means to be a chamber musician. For as much as you and other friends who are in you know professional string quartets for as much as you all told me like there's this whole other side of things it's something I just couldn't learn until I was in it yeah. and it was like it hit me like a waterfall such an important part of being in a chamber ensemble and we all know every chamber group does things a little bit differently but it really is this like you know you get your orchestra job and then you show up to rehearsal on time you take your 20 minute break when they tell you and then you get your paycheck I mean you and know, you I may be you may be able to be on some committees with the orchestras that's almost voluntary with a string quartet it's not I mean I think also everybody says like a string quartet is like a marriage oh totally right and like I've heard this sense in the chamber music world that's one of the classic cliches yeah but really like about two or three months into being in my quartet it takes some emotional bandwidth Totally. And um, And resilience too. Yeah. I like to think of it as either a marriage or just a family that you find, you know, when one person gets upset, there's someone else that might counteract. It's always about trying to find the equilibrium of either your voice being heard, having someone else's voice equal. And so I suppose we sign up quote unquote for it, but that's kind of the joy about it too, is that it's really kind of this, for me, it's like this living organism that you're constantly making sure that the team is still working. Right. And I think what you said before, it's exactly that what you say applies equally to the music making and to everything else. I must say, I think the first time we played in a quartet together, Giancarlo, was for one of the kinetic concerts and we were playing Webern's Long Summer Sots. And I remember thinking like, wow, he's a great chamber musician right there, you know? And then when we were doing the prep, we asked Ivo Vandevers, the viola faculty at Shepherd, to play with us and read some of the music that was upcoming for your audition. And I remember him saying to you, oh, you know, if I was hired a violinist for my string quartet, you'll be hired. And sure enough, you did it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's also partially to your credit because I think you were the one who suggested to me, hey, Evo would be a great person to ask. And I think even having known Evo since 
the very first day I started at Rice because he was the house residential college house parent for the residential college I was in as a freshman and throughout my whole undergrad. And so I knew him even before I knew him musically. I knew him as just this wonderful human who yeah. was so involved and engaged and caring and supportive. And so even after all of that, you know, it hadn't occurred to me when I was auditioning for a quartet to ask somebody like him to play sure. together. And so I, I appreciated that you said, you know, you should just ask him. You know? Yeah. And yeah, it was so helpful to play with. I mean, he had an amazingly long and fruitful career with the Medici Quartet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Sushi seems to want to say hi. So if you heard some cat meows, that was my cat sushi. Let's move on to the Spitfire questions. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. Mozart or Beethoven? Mozart. Shostakovich or Prokofiev? Shostakovich. Netflix or video games? Netflix, for sure. Basil or cilantro? Basil. Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? Oh, Harry Potter. I mean, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> One of the first things when I did join Kinetic, I like also looked over and was like, oh, that guy looks like Harry Potter. <laughs> I know this is another tangent, but one of my favorite restaurants in Rice Village, which is the sort of shopping district right near Rice, is called Thai Village. Yeah. And I would go there so often as a freshman and the hostess would always say, oh my God, Harry Potter. Every time I came in. Oh my God, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She, we had this thing. She like knew me as Harry Potter. So For me, it's you have the circular glasses of Harry Potter that accentuate the Harry Potterness. Yeah. I always get Harry Potter or Where's Waldo. Where's... Oh, I see. Moving forward. Symphony or chamber music? Chamber music yeah of course <laughs> coffee or tea coffee favorite practice room something overlooking the sea wow that's specific <laughs> is there a particular place that you're thinking like the pacific the atlantic i don't know every time i've i think it's more of a fantasy practice room oh, although okay. i did spend some time in alaska and there was a practice room that sort of overlooked the yeah the sound and oh so beautiful i don't know either that or just like no windows carpet, low ceilings. I want to go like, like basement. Yeah, like one or the other. I need like pristine picturesque or like dungeon. Wow, that is okay. <laughs> Did not know that. <laughs> I didn't know that either. Favorite professor shout out. It's not the most creative answer, but it's the most obvious one to me, which is my two incredible teachers, Almeida Vemos and Paul Cantor. Yay. Nice. Okay. Most inspired music. Did I miss the point of that question? No. Okay. I was, because I was, I'm sorry. Could I, I have said like Professor Dumbledore. No. <laughs> that would be funny though, because of the Harry Potter references. Yes. <laughs> Professor Snape. Great. Okay. Most inspired musical hero of any genre? Oh, Bob Dylan. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. Most transformative performance experience? The end of the Firebird Suite when I was in sixth grade at Interlochen Intermediate Boys Camp. Wow. It was just one of the first times that I had played in an orchestra where I just felt that sound. Sure. Uh, and it was pretty incredible. And I mean, there have been many since then, but that's... That's the one that's sticking out to you. Sticking out, yeah. Yeah. So listen to the Firebird, or if you don't have much time, listen to the Firebird Suite. The last movement, the Bersus, is this expansive orchestral wave of sound that is just glorious, especially after the Inferno dance that yeah. is like so rocking. And there's also this YouTube video of a woman screaming in the audience <laughs> at the downbeat of the Inferno dance that, just check it out, it's really funny. Anyway, okay. Yeah, that's, I know that video, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, next piece you'd like to learn? Oh, there are always so many. I think Frank Sonata, which has been a void in my repertoire forever. And that's just so good. It's such a so beautiful good. piece. Well, you got to do it with uh, Escape Velocity then. That should be yes. next on the docket. Yeah. Frank Sonata. Frank Sonata. Also listen to the Frank Sonata. It's a gorgeous.
gorgeous piece of music. I love, okay, I have played it, but I know I'm kind of cheating because it is a violin piano sonata. It's such a good piece that you can probably find a recording of it on virtually any instrument. Every instrument has stolen it since then. I feel like I've heard it on saxophone. Really? Like... Flute is one of the other common instruments yeah. for that piece. So you have your choice of instrumentation, yeah. let's say. Okay, you finished. You did it. Oh, yay. That was so fun. Was I it? Was okay. Just like blurting out answers. Okay, cool. It was like my entire <laughs> elementary school. <laughs> okay, so can you tell me about how you even began pursuing music from the baby steps to then when you decided to pursue it professionally and then beyond? Yeah, so I started playing violin when I was six years old. I started with the Suzuki method and for the first eight or nine years that I was playing, I had a wonderful, wonderful teacher in Ann Arbor who really helped me not only lay a really strong foundation for a lot of technical aspects of playing violin, but was also super encouraging of exploring music and going to concerts and listening to a lot of different music. Yeah, I think that's actually a huge part of sort of adolescence is going to concerts. I had teachers similarly that really gave us free tickets to go to see like Lynn Harrell and, you know, Gil Shaham, like just the best of the best. Yeah, it's like not on top of your own private lessons. It's so important to go see these wonderful chamber music. I think I saw a master class. I'm sorry, I'm interjecting into your story. No. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think for me, at least like a big part of my reason that I love chamber music is that I was able to go sit in the audience when I was 11 or something something and watch master classes given by the Tokyo String Quartet of like the upcoming chamber groups. Like I watched Eighth Blackbird when they were just starting oh, off, wow. you know, stuff like that. Like that means more to me. And I, I guess I'm just trying to say I'm inserting myself in the story for you <laughs> because I want to say how important going to concerts is for music education. It's not just about the lessons. It's about actually yeah. going to see these performers play. Okay, continue. <laughs> Sorry. No, totally. I mean, I was I was going to say too that you grew up in, in San Diego, right? Mm -hmm. San Diego. Diego, right? And yeah, so I should I say was... the way I was able to see these performances was through the La Jolla Music Society. Back then it was called the La Jolla Chamber Music Society. I mean, I was going to say that Ann Arbor also, I mean, like San Diego, it has an incredible, because of the university and because of just the culture here, there's incredible resources. I mean, I have similar stories in, uh, I think, ninth grade. My high school partnered with the University Musical Society and brought in the Takash Quartet to give us a master class. And we were like freshmen in high school, right. barely any business playing for these people. And I saw the Guarneri Quartet in their final season and stuff like this that it's just incredible to think back on now and how much a part of these great concerts were part of just the everyday experience of growing up. And now looking back, I'm really grateful for that. And But I think also to the point of we both lived in places where this was possible, but I think now it's like even with COVID, it's like we don't have access to these things, but for students who may be growing up in more rural communities or places where there isn't stuff like this, I think it's, you know, that's what's so great about YouTube and stuff because, I mean, right. there's obviously nothing replaces a live concert. Actually, I've learned as a member of a string quartet now that there are a lot of very eager and supportive audiences in small towns across the country that have chamber music societies. And those are some of the most interesting and fulfilling concerts to play because there are these audiences who it's really a big event when a quartet from New York City or Los Angeles comes through and plays on this small series and the people are just so supportive and love the music and it's been incredible to see that from the other side but I think growing up having access to that was really incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other thing for me growing up was that my parents are not musicians. They're both writers. And so muggles? They, they're muggles, yeah. <laughs> you gotta keep the Harry Potter. I know, right? <laughs> 
and so they understand they both were trained as poets actually and so the joke sort of growing up was that there's a stereotype or a trope of you know parents not wanting kids to go into music because it's you know you can't make much money is the perception and for my parents it was the opposite they were like you're gonna be the the breadwinner in the family poets here (laughs) and they were so astonished as a poet you can't really like there's not a culture of teaching private lessons you know you maybe are employed by a university or sure if you're lucky you publish a couple volumes in your lifetime but yeah they were like wow you can teach and get money bucks an hour. yeah like, that's incredible <laughs> like, you're gonna you're gonna do fine right but it, it was nice because they were very supportive and never forced me to practice actually so I think the most important thing for me becoming a musician was that it really came from me there was a moment when I was like you know this is what I want to do and I decided if I want this I have to practice and because it came from me and my own you know whatever long-term goal making you have when you're 11 or 12 it's like (laughs) like this is something I want to do so this is what I need to do yeah um and I think that was really important because now I mean I did not practice very much as a kid because I wasn't forced to and I was like I'm not going to do this if I don't have to but now it's like practicing is still something that is relatively painless for me because it's always been something that has come from right a really ingrained place that's awesome that's not a lot of people's stories (laughs) I know I know I mean obviously practicing sucks like a lot of the time but but it's always you have this like internal spark that keeps you invested in honing your craft for me practice Practicing has never been separated from a desire to be a musician. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens when you're very young and you're being forced to practice is practicing becomes this source of tension and this thing that you, as a kid, you don't want to do. Yeah. But practicing for me has always been tied to my desire to make music and I've been able to keep it fresh in that way which that's is like, awesome not in quarantine though I like <laughs> my violin is like collecting dust <laughs> no it's okay you need to take a break yeah whatever happens in quarantine stays in quarantine I don't know <laughs> I love that I haven't heard that before that's like my new I'm adopting that <laughs> I just Perhaps. made I literally just made that that's up amazing I would, that's like the next trending hashtag or something. I, <laughs> I love that <laughs> Oh, goodness. What did I do? Okay, (laughs) continue on their story. I'm going to be thinking about that one. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, when I was in eighth grade, my mom took me to Chicago to audition for a teacher there, Almeida Bamos, who I mentioned. Quick question. How far is Ann Arbor to Chicago? It is a four-hour drive each way. Oh, yikes. Okay, so so it's a trek. It's a track. There was an older student who had the same teacher as I did in Ann Arbor who had transitioned to studying in Chicago. She and I started with the same Suzuki teacher and then both ended up going to Chicago. We were like four years apart and then she went to Juilliard and then it ended up happening that she started her master's at Rice the same year that I started. Oh my God. Freshman. So it was like this weird. Yeah. Full circle. Yeah. So Mrs. Vamos said she would work with me. And for the first year when I was in eighth grade, we went, I think it was about once a month, maybe once every two weeks. Mrs. Vamos is just a wonderful and legendary teacher and she and her husband Roland Bamos teach together often he's a violinist and violist and so he teaches a lot of technique and etudes and scales the idea is that you play that for him and then you play your repertoire for Mrs. Bamos but oh, I see. since okay. since I was coming from out of town I wasn't always able to have lessons with him because of you know timing and driving sure. and scheduling so I mostly studied with Mrs. Bamos starting in ninth grade and then all throughout high school I went every week so huge shout out to my parents for yeah. driving me back and forth. 
and in like ice and hours. snow and my goodness yeah, yeah it's not a pretty drive no uh, basically from like november to april you're at risk right so i was part of sort of a pre-college program there at the music institute of chicago i mean i still feel like the dominoes of my life would not have fallen in the same way had it not been for that that's huge so, yeah. It was huge just to be in this environment. I mean, like I said, Ann Arbor has a super rich musical community and the University of Michigan and great, great concerts, great teachers. But just getting outside of that and having this expansion of my perception of what the professional music world was, was eye-opening and made me realize I had a, a lot of work to do. Sure. Yeah. yeah. The fish analogy is in there yes. somewhere. <laughs> yeah. As in the like the big fish in a small pond or, or yeah, yeah. yeah that I'm just clarifying what I mean by no, the fish analogy. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. The reason I was quiet was because I was trying to think of like an appropriate Harry Potter analogy. Oh no. And it's sort of like you know, Harry like doesn't have this is ridiculous and a total stretch, but like <laughs> Hagrid comes to get him at the shack. Mm-hmm. He's like, You're a wizard, Harry. But it's like a little bit like that. I was going to Hogwarts. And oh, I see. Now there I just... are all these okay. it's a total stretch. Right? <laughs> But right, like you like found out that you're a wizard. Well, that you when you put it like that, it <laughs> doesn't sound so elegant. It sounds like, but <laughs> there's, we can move on. Okay, okay. <laughs> we're trying. We're trying to make the Harry Potter references stay through. Yeah, Got to keep it thematic. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I spent four years studying in Chicago, and then I um, did the whole circuit of auditioning for conservatories and colleges and actually one of the great things about the program in Chicago was that they had guest artists frequently for master classes and the college deadline for musicians is December 1st right so my senior year I was trying to figure out doing some last minute oh did I apply to the right schools did I do the right thing and I was I had applied to all these conservatories I was sort of like, well, this is what I want. I didn't really want like a university experience. So I thought, and I wasn't going to apply to Rice. It was sort of off my radar, I think, because it was in Texas. Which... You know, a similar ha- thing happened to me in my undergrad. Really? Yeah. Like I was like, Rice? Who wants to go to Texas? <laughs> so I... Yeah. So I didn't apply there for my undergraduate. Right. Well, and so I was scheduled, Mrs. Vamos signed me up to play for a master class with Paul Cantor, mm-hmm. who was a professor at Rice. And that was going to be on like December 8th or something. And I was like, oh, well, you know, if I have this master class and I really love him, I am going to regret not applying to Rice. Got it. So on like November 30th, I sent an application to Rice. And there are no words for Paul Cantor, but he is such a virtuoso at giving master classes. Master classes are so hard to give. And I feel like he's one of the few people who there's just this spark. And I just was totally drawn to go study with him. Yeah. Yeah. And then I obviously stayed, as I said, stayed for my master's for two extra years. And that sort of brings us to today. Yeah. So for Argus. So can you tell me a little bit about your first year or so with Argus until COVID hit? I joined a year ago in June and we started working together in September. So we actually really only had about six months of playing together. Oh, wow. The new group. And it was tricky because it was a double member switch. They weren't looking for just a violin replacement. I believe they were also looking for a viola replacement simultaneously. Right. Yeah. So it was so um, a big switch for the quartet. A big change for the group. You know, when you have half the group change like that, it's really different, but it's also you have this opportunity to sort of shape the group. And it was nice actually to not just be somebody stepping in and having to scramble to sort of fit myself to the group. I felt like both myself and the violist from day one sort of had a sense of 
you know, being able to create something to take the group in not necessarily a new direction, but that we both had some sort of ownership of the group, which isn't necessarily the case if you're just the single person stepping into a group. Sure. What kind of projects for Argus were you able to do before COVID hit? Yeah, so part of what attracted me to Argus was the interest that the group has always had in contemporary repertoire and not just contemporary repertoire on its own, but in dialogue with old repertoire. There are a lot of groups who play mostly standard repertoire really amazingly and excellently and play occasionally a newly commissioned work. And then there are a lot of groups like the Jack Quartet is just one example who play all new music and it's all amazing. And those guys, you can like put anything in front of them and they'll do it. Just play it immediately. Yeah. But what drew me to Argus was that there's a real interest in in this conversation, this dialogue between old works and new works. So we do a lot of commissioning of living composers. There are a lot of composers who the quartet over the years has developed close relationships with and who we continue to work with. Most of our programs are a mix of old and new works. So a typical program that we were doing a lot this year was the movements of the Bach Art of Fugue and mm-hmm. the string quartet by Fanny Mendelssohn. Mm-hmm. And then a piece that we commissioned a couple of years ago from a Princeton professor, Jury So, a beautiful string quartet that Argus has recorded, actually. Some works by Chris Theophanides, who's a professor at Yale. And yeah, we're, we're interested in not only pairing the old with the new, but sort of finding these threads and programming in a way that there's an arc and a story that's being told in the program. What we do is not so much about producing beautiful music, but there's a message always behind the works that we do. There's a message behind what the composer intended for that piece. And I think the artful way of putting together programs enhances that message even more. Here I go talking about Kinetic again, but Kinetic is also really great about doing that yes, too, right? Absolutely. And I learned personally a lot from Kinetic's programming and that tailoring of programming and making it curated for the audience to get this whole ideal message other than just the beauty of the music. And I think in the chamber music world, especially, it's I think it's harder to do this with orchestral concerts, especially when, as Kinetic does and as Argus does, when you're trying to expose audiences to contemporary repertoire, presenters are hesitant often to program, you know, because it's ticket sales, it's all Mm -hmm. these things. But so often when presenters are willing to take a chance and take a risk with not one, but three contemporary pieces, we've had so many audience members who have said, you know, that juxtaposition, like hearing these things alongside Bach or alongside Fanny Mendelssohn, they understand the story. Right. And they understand the narrative that we're trying to create. And this is related to, I think, why I I'm so interested in reading and writing is that to me everything is about narrative and I think if we can do this in music it's about the narrative suite I just told you my narrative of you know, my musical upbringing it's like this is how we comprehend things or see art literally it's the oral tradition of passing down stories passing down knowledge right. passing down experiences this is just the bread and butter of society exactly <laughs> but I think too often programming ignores that yes for and the so greatest think- hits Right. Yeah, I think audiences often find themselves pleasantly surprised. So don't be intimidated if you see a program for a concert that has something that you're not familiar with. Yes. You probably might like or it. Or even two things that you're not familiar with. <laughs> or, or that, yes. And actually, the same goes for old music, too. And Kinetic, again, has been really amazing on this front, too. But Fanny Mendelssohn's String Quartet was written in 1820-something. And mm-hmm. when we perform it, it's often the first time audiences are hearing it. Totally. Of course, for entirely different reasons. Right. Then they're not the- hearing the brand new piece. 
piece. The reasons being that women composers were not really supported back in the day. That's a very polite way of putting it. <laughs> uh, but we, we had this concert in New York and I've found even just having played there for less than a year that New York audiences are very smart and very enthusiastic. But this man who had, you know, came up to us at the reception was like, I didn't even know Felix Mendelssohn had a sister. I didn't know this piece. He was so, I mean, in this very like New York way, he was like, sure. very worked up about it. Like <laughs> it's criminal that this work has not been played. What other pieces might we be missing? Like Totally. And it's so true. I mean, it's a shame that a piece from 1820 something can have the same effect or, you know, can have the same obscurity as something brand new. Totally. So I think it's all part of, like you said, curating the program. Mm -hmm. So tell me about Escape Velocity. Yeah. So Escape Velocity is a violin and piano duo. And my duo partner, pianist Robert Flights, basically we're just friends and we like to play duos together. So we're both still sort of training ourselves to talk about our duo. You know, like for us, it's just like we met in 2016. We played together at a summer festival. Despite living he in New York and me in Houston for the last three years, we tried to get together occasionally and put together programs. We realized that we had similar goals for repertoire that we wanted to explore. But really until I moved to New York now about a year ago, that was the first time we had lived in the same place. And that was when we started saying, okay, well, this is- This is feasible now. For me, it's just another sort of modality of doing the same thing that I'm broadly interested in, which is- But just in a different setup. Yeah. With Argus, I'm exploring the same concepts as with Escape Velocity, but just for a different instrumentation. And how do your compositions tie into all of this? Oh, well, I'm a very bashful composer. I never like to call myself a composer. I don't know why. It's I have this resistance. It, Everybody's like, you have composed several pieces, therefore you're a composer. And Mr. Cantor used to get like really upset annoyed with me. And he was actually really supportive of my composing. And one of the first pieces I wrote, I played, I think it was my junior or senior recital. Uh-huh. And he was like, where has this side of you been? So it became this sort of thing. And also because I was so interested in commissioning, he he was asking about the side of me that was a composer but because he knew I was also interested in commissioning other people as a performer he was always like why spend money on commissioning just write it yourself got it like, sort of jokingly <laughs> oh my god that's such a Paul Cantorism oh my god I can see it <laughs> it's like classic Paul Cantor it's yeah like, totally he like knows he's pushing your buttons in the most loving way but he really means it I know that it was because he believed in me as a composer absolutely he was always like ah, am I a composer I don't like know. you don't stop yourself <laughs> Yeah. And I'm also really only a composer by necessity. Like when it's gotten out to people that I compose and I've had the occasional good fortune of having a commission, then I'm a composer. But I'm not a very self-motivated composer either. I mean, do you, was... do you, does everyone hear this though? That John Carlo is <laughs> no, open this, for oh a comp- <laughs> <laughs> This sounds now, it's like, sounds like I, it's a shameless plug. No, <laughs> no, I'm trying to be Paul Cantor pushing that button. Like, come on, everyone. <laughs> I think everybody should compose a piece and have it performed. Oh, God. Well, this is also part of, I think, my complex about it, because for so long in our field, composing and performing went hand in hand. There's such a tradition with every instrument, pianists, certainly, but also violinists and a lot of other instruments, too. There's this tradition of being composer slash performer. Totally. And I don't know when it went out of style, but that's just not part of our training. You know, maybe I'm, I'm sure like you have a lot of degrees. I'm sure you've had to like compose a piece in a theory class at some point, right? Sure. Yeah. But like that's, wouldn't you say that that's about the extent of like you being led to compose? Yeah. I mean, the closest I've come to composing is arranging cello quartets. Right. That's just like, I pick notes out of thin air because 
because I have perfect pitch and I put them down based on how I know the arrangement of how a cellist can play. But that's like, I'm not well, a composer. But, but I mean, arranging arranging is a, a totally different animal and a yeah. complete art in and of itself. And your cello quartet arrangements are super cool. So oh, thanks. Everybody <laughs> should check those out. Okay, thank you. <laughs> She's not just a podcaster. <laughs> You know, I mean, I think what you're saying is exactly to my point, which is that there's not, you know, we're not encouraged in conservatory to become composers. Improvisation is just gone. We don't right. train ourselves to improvise at all. And I think that's the link that prevents us from composing because right. all the greatest old composers, Beethoven, Mozart, were the best improvisers, right? I'm sure Paganini was a great improviser. Oh, yeah. That little part of our education that the kernel is missing there. Yeah. Yeah. But improvising is so hard. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the thing too. Or we just need a lot of alcohol. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Yeah. Drink responsibly. <laughs> but no, that's... We're covering a lot of ground here. I know. We got Harry Potter. Potter? We have like a... A PSA. Gang PSA. <laughs> a plug for Patty's cello video. Right. And a plug for John Carlos' composing career. Yeah, so. commission me, please. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is then a good point to just take a break. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready okay. for a break. Sounds good. Okay, we'll be right back. Welcome back from the break. So before the break, Giancarlo and I were talking about how potentially my cat Sushi might be Professor McGonagall, just to keep the Harry Potter themes going. But, you know, she yes. is a very, very cute and sweet cat. But then I was telling Giancarlo that sometimes she sits really stiffly and it reminds me of the very opening of the first chapter of the first book. She so, looks like she's really enjoying lounging in the sun right now. Definitely. This is prime time nap time. Window, window nap time. there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you're also telling me, though, that your parents are poets. Is that somehow how you became interested in reading and writing? And let's get going talking about that. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine that it's unrelated. I grew up, actually, I'm currently in the same house full of books. You know, as a child, it was just like, oh, there are books everywhere. But actually, during quarantine, I left New York. My lease was ending. and New York is was a dangerous place for COVID. So yeah, was, I'm glad um, you were able to find a place outside. Yeah, it's really only been in the last since college, mid college, really, that I've gotten voraciously into reading. As a kid, I read picture books and then chapter books. And I was always the kid who was reading. Oh, sure. Um, but for a while in high school, I think once violin really became a focus, that was sort of the main thing. I guess maybe I just have a temperament that allows me to only focus on one thing at once. But you know, just being back here, it's like all of these books that I've been seeing, I've been seeing their spines since I was five years old. And now I just want to read them all. Yeah, it's, it's like weird because I'll recognize a spine in a bookstore or something and say, oh, I've, that's been sitting above my bed all of my life. And, sure. And it turns out that my parents have a lot of books that I'm actually interested in reading. So it's been nice during COVID because in New York, I go probably two or three times a week to the library. I love libraries. And at Rice, all of my friends in undergrad thought it was weird because they all avoided the library like the plague. Uh, <laughs> I really say that right now in COVID times, but uh, <laughs> they, they avoided the library. <laughs> You know, they were like, I'll go there if I have to write a paper or if I have to study for something. But often, because it was open 24 hours for students, it's like always such a treat coming back from Shepherd to my dorm at like 10 or 11 p.m. And just my dorm was right across from the library. So I would often just stop. And because the only thing people really used it for was studying, you know, people would be sitting in the study areas, but go up to the third or fourth floor walking through the stacks. It's like the Forbidden Forest or something. I'm really <laughs> going to work on the, you know, keeping the Harry 
Potter <laughs> thing in the loop. But, or, you know, for that matter, the library in Harry Potter. I mean, on the one hand, it has this beautiful mystery about it. But on the other hand, it's like I get really overwhelmed because there are so many books to read. I'm like, I'm literally never going to be able to read all of these. And I have a very like all or nothing. Have you watched Gilmore Girls? I haven't. Oh, okay. Should I? <laughs> well, I personally love this show, but you reminded me of Alexis Bledel's character. Rory is such a bookworm and she wants to go to Harvard. So they go to this college trip to go see Harvard and yeah. she sees all these libraries or the number of libraries on the Harvard campus. And then she has this panic attack of like, <laughs> I can't read all these books. I What am I doing? I'm like, why am I sleeping? Like she has this like, so that's just yeah. reminding me of what you're saying. That sounds relatable. Yeah. <laughs> um, since, I mean, I was saying since I'm so used to going to the library in New York and the New York Public Library is like incredible but it's hard to go to the library you can't really go to bookstores right now but I came home and I was like I saw a book on Amazon or something and I was like oh like should I order this and then my mom like looked over my shoulder and she's like oh that's like over there <laughs> it's like that's there yeah you you basically are living in a bookstore or a library, library. Yeah, yeah. I'm very satisfied by that fact. So right what is it about reading to you that is it just sort of turning each page? Is it the stories behind it? Or because I mean, I'm assuming you probably have a particular genre that you're interested in. Yeah. Is there like a, at least for, I mean, I like finished a book this morning. To me, it was like getting to the, I was like so determined to finish and get to the very last page. And that satisfaction was just like, yes, I did it. Finish yeah. the book. I know what's inside here. Yeah, no, that's definitely part of it. And actually, I was like, super resistant to ebooks for a really long time okay um, and like e-readers kindle and is hard for me i well i really like the tactile element and like sometimes on the train in new york and stuff i'll like read on my phone because i don't want to carry a book around all the time sure totally but, yeah but since covid started i was like the new york public library has made a lot of ebooks available and so i've been sort of like dipping my toe into that and it's still that's realizing it's still not for me i think it's partly that the tactile element of turning each page and like holding it yeah I'd, i'm not really I don't know. It's it's an interesting question because I don't think I've ever really thought about it, like why I read. And I read a pretty broad range of stuff. I read some poetry, some nonfiction, but mostly fiction. It's not that I don't think I would say that I really read for like the story or the plot. It's similar to music in a sense where it's like it's less abstract, obviously, but reading for what's in between the lines. You know, mm -hmm. like the actually the more subconscious experience of reading is hmm. what attracts me. It's how it expresses. I actually don't really have a sense for plot so much. I don't necessarily like I don't need a story that rises and falls in a traditional way. But I think passages like in music where there's just something that takes your breath away. Mm -hmm. And there's there's something about that in music that's indescribable. Sure. And I think with words, I mean, with language, I think because it has, you know, an ascribed meaning, we tend to want to grasp that meaning. But I think for me, reading is like a challenge to myself to let go of having to find meaning necessarily. Which Interesting. Is... You can get lost a little bit, like yeah. allow yourself to just zoom out. Yeah, I just love that sort of on a local level, the experience of coming across a passage in a book where you're like, this is it. This person climbed inside my brain. Mm. You know? I think the first time that I experienced that, I don't remember what it was, but I was like, this person wrote words to describe something that I didn't even know I wanted to describe. I didn't even know that this feeling I had could be described. And totally. It's so dumb. No, it's so dumb. It's so, it's just like you're talking oh. up here and I'm going to say something down here. No, that's, that is, no. Okay, but that clicked for me when I was listening to, I'm sorry, I was listening to Taylor Swift and like some of her lyrics, hey, some of her legit. lyrics are like, dang girl, you, that's exactly how I'm feeling. I never knew how to put it in words, but man, you did it. Yeah, but I mean, it's like that's oh, I'm like you're talking up here, and I'm like I'm gonna talk about Tara Swift. <laughs> like, 
no, I, I mean, who doesn't love Taylor Swift? I mean, I know, but. but <laughs> yeah, I think part of great literature is that it doesn't always have an ascribed meaning. It's strange because with music, it's like, we're not told what a piece of music means. We create that for ourselves, right? But like sure. when I'm reading poetry, I get so frustrated because it's like, and I think it also has to do with how we're taught in high school and stuff. It's like, this is a symbol. This is a meaning, you know? And so when I'm reading poetry, it's like, I don't get it. You know, like what, what if I don't get it? But I think <laughs> I'm practicing like looking at it actually more musically, like my engagement with this is what's creating the meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh my God. God, that's so good. That's so good. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's actually interesting to me when well, you said you wanted to talk about something yeah. non-music related because I'm like, whether or not I can do it articulately, I have been talking about music in conversations like this or in lessons or just over a beer with friends like for your whole life longer, whatever. Well, I haven't been drinking beer for a decade <laughs> for anybody who knows my age. <laughs> Again, drink responsibly, but... <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. The theme. Throwback. See? <laughs> yes. Good. Got to keep it. Um, reading is like, I don't know if I would call it a hobby. It's like an obsession, but yeah. it's like not something I talk about really in this way. So it's... What I loved, though, about what you said earlier when I was like, oh, now I have to remember, what did you just say? It was something like... I don't even remember. What did you... What was your wisdom? Okay. Like, we like... Our engagement with it is what ascribes the meaning. Or like yes. What gives the meaning. That's the audience perspective for our concerts that should you know what i mean like it's not just about what we give to our audiences as a performer it's also the engagement back from the audience to what we're doing the dialogue there so that's why i was like oh i got so excited because because that's like what we miss during covid right that's why the live performances are so important is because we have that conduit right when a screen is put up because of being socially distant being safe and healthy we do miss that interaction and it's right questions like this are tricky and it's easy to just make grand statements. But I think for me, it's any sentence that starts with like, that's the thing about art making, but I'm going to say it anyway. The thing that I feel like is most overlooked about engagement with any art form in today's society because of screens and because of how we live is the way in which it's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what is missing from a lot of engagement, whether it's in a concert, it's not through the fault of the audience or the fault of the performers. But I think, you know, when we're talking about like with Argus trying to create these narratives, create these stories, or whether it's, you know, with Kinetic or any of these things we've been talking about, it's like the observer or the audience needs to remember that they have permission to be an active part of the art that's being made. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's like we think of maybe going to a concert, like going to a movie or something, which is maybe more passive. Right. But I think what you're touching on is like this active engagement. And it's like even the same thing with like, you know, how we read. Do we read for, I mean, obviously there's something to be said for like seeing a movie and watching that yeah. sort of entertainment, yeah. passive entertainment for right. pleasure. But the engagement, the questioning, what's most interesting to me is like when there's an audience who feels like they have the freedom to question what's being given to them and to think about it and not to, you know, that's why new music is interesting. That's why playing works that people have never heard is interesting. It's because it's bringing them a new experience. It's bringing them something it's that, that book on the shelf that you haven't touched and or whatever right. or right. A, the new book coming out yeah yeah and i think it's that active engagement with the art that is certainly lost with 
the COVID era, viewing it over a screen and stuff. But even just more broadly, I think it's like what our role as artists is in some ways to provide a space where the audience can be involved. And that doesn't have to mean they get up on stage and dance, you know, but it's like <laughs> finding these points of entry. And I think that's also like we think about with Argus, like with programming, you know, Bach and then a contemporary piece is like maybe the Bach, you know, you do it artfully. Maybe this is an entry point into this and then beyond that. Because I don't know, there are so many barriers to entry with with so much art. And mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's another problem too, is, you know, whether it's ticket prices or small town that may not have the coronary quartet on their farewell tour, you know? Right. Yeah. It's about creating these entry points. Yeah. For me, it's like this continual sense, which I think is why it can feel tricky to talk about it as artists, because we're figuring it out just as much as everybody, you know, this is what we're doing. You know, the fact that you are attending a concert by Argus Quartet doesn't mean that Argus Quartet has got it all figured out and totally. you are there to take what they have to give. It's like, we're all in this process of questioning mm-hmm. and of discovering what I mean it's like one of the oldest questions I guess like what what is the role of art what's the meaning of art <laughs> <laughs> so you know no I just I'm just laughing because it's like because <laughs> now we've really boiled it down to like what's our purpose <laughs> yeah, in life <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really got a little rain it in <laughs> Let's reel it in. Let's get back to Earth. No, no, it's Not totally. <laughs> no, it's all great. It's all great. So I was asking about the art of reading for you, which then unlocked that whole tangent. <laughs> Are there any particular authors? Are there any particular books you want to recommend? Oh, this is always a... Are you also part of a book club? I'm not part of a book club. Oh my God, why not? You should have a book club. Maybe I should have a book club. Okay. <laughs> you heard it here first. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Commission me and join my book club. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I don't know. It's so personal. I mean, it's strange. You know, there's like some music that you hear and you're like, I need to share this with everybody. Yes. And then there's some music. I don't know if this is the case for you, but I also, there's sometimes I engage with music in such a way that it's like, I actually maybe don't. Certain pieces where it's like, I have my own this yeah. piece has some importance to me that I'm maybe like what if they don't like it or what if I sure it's similar with me for books it's, I mean I can think of very few books that I would just broadly say everybody needs to read this whereas with music it's like well I think everybody needs to listen to I don't even know actually <laughs> what am I saying um, I think what you're trying if I may try to interpret I think what you're saying is that yes you can lead someone down a certain path but that doesn't mean that that's the right path that they should follow actually what they should be doing is trying to seek out what they're looking for themselves. Yeah, that's beautifully put and succinctly put, which I would definitely have talked for like five times as long as that. <laughs> but uh, but I, that's where I'm like, okay, I hope that I didn't put words in your mouth. No, I. that's exactly right. I mean, I think it's... That's a very Zen way of thinking. Yeah, it is. Okay. I don't know. I, I think oh. there's also like with books and music, this is a little like new agey, but there are books that I've started or actually pieces. I think musicians feel this way too. I don't know why I say that like I'm not a musician, but I feel this way as a musician and as a reader that certain books and pieces come at the right time. Yes. And like there are pieces that I've tried to start to learn and for whatever reason, it's like gotten stuck with it. It just hasn't been the right moment. And the same with books. It's like there are books that I've started five times and really like actually developed a resistance to reading. And then one day I'll pull it off the shelf and it's like, the most important thing I've ever read. Yeah, it's like similar with pieces. Like Frank Sonata, like I said, it's like, I can't believe I haven't learned that. That's like, I don't know. I, I feel like I heard it in studio class every single week for like six years and I never learned. Maybe that's why I didn't learn it. But like, it's the same with books. So it's like, I feel like there's a right time and place and it doesn't really matter what the book is, but if it's the right time for that book for you, then... The wand chooses you. The wand chooses the wizard, yeah. <laughs> I love it. 
Okay, can we transition to writing? You're, so you're talking about how you recently started to pick up writing more. Why? In the same way that I feel composing is, even though I'm bashful about it, a natural extension of playing violin. I think writing is a natural extension of reading for me. Probably not the case for everybody, but as a kid, I wrote a lot and I enjoyed writing, whether it was like little stories or and I didn't really enjoy like academic writing, obviously, or like papers. And I think this also has to do with, it's not that I'm not interested in plot, but it's like plot isn't that important to me when I'm reading. It's like the same with writing. Like I've always, even writing like papers and stuff, I'm interested in the language and the words and in crafting that, which I think feels very different from composing, but it's a similar impulse of taking this language that we have, whether it's the English language or musical notes and shaping it and crafting it, putting it together and pulling it apart. I think that's where the impulse comes from. But, you know, quarantine, I feel like, you know, everybody's got, not that they have to, but I feel like a lot of people have like their quarantine projects. I guess so, being I mean, Miss Person who created a podcast. But... Yeah, there you go. I mean, <laughs> this is a great project. <laughs> You already have a lot to show for it. Well, you know. But for me, it was like, well, I don't know if you felt this in your musical studies. To a certain extent, you sort of have to pursue things with blinders on. You know, I feel like I stepped in almost from like eighth grade when I started studying with Mrs. Vamos in Chicago. It's feel like I stepped into this tunnel or onto this oh, okay. moving, yes. wa- moving walkway. Yes, totally. Yeah, I know. Airport. it. Yeah. And like, I just, and I feel like maybe people feel, a lot of people feel this way probably about COVID too, is whether I stepped off the tunnel or stepped out of the tunnel or was sort of thrust out of the tunnel by gale of wind like (laughs) this is like a time when everything is turned on its head in the world and for me i think i sensed sort of at the beginning of the pandemic i was like this is internally i feel that this is going to be a time when i don't play as much for whatever reason i saw on facebook Dana Fontenot had posted a status that was like oh i just took this amazing like writing class with violinist Trisha Park, who I didn't know, but I, you know, I looked her up and I added her on Facebook and I saw that she was also a violinist in a quartet. She teaches, you know, has this very vibrant career as a musician, but also, you know, is a writer and was teaching these sort of writing classes where you could show up. It was about exploring the feelings of the pandemic, generative writing. So just showing up and writing and having this sort of community. And I was like, you know, it's been this sort of like itch I've wanted to scratch ever since I've been reading for however long. So that got me into like a habit of once a week sitting down and writing and then it went from there I mean I'm still not really sure like we're not trained to be like violinist composer we have these I think people refer to it as slash career you know I'm like this slash this slash this but for me it's still like I don't really know how writing is going to fit more broadly into my life but reading is important to me and writing has become important to me so at the very least it's been fun to do in quarantine it's not for you to necessarily interpret why you're doing it now if it's giving you pleasure you can reflect back and look at the fruits of your labor, let's say. But one thing I did, which you kind of tapped into a little bit, but something that I kind of noticed, at least from during this episode, is that I find that you have a particular pattern, which is that you find something that inspires you, interests you, and then you try to hone it in yourself. The links are, are inter- like, I mean, I bet you'd be a great chef or like, you know, <laughs> oh, or a great baker or like, you know what I mean? over for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> No, but you know what I'm saying? Like there's this like very inquisitive part of you of, hey, like this thing's really awesome. I want to learn how the recipe works, in other words. That resonates, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really cool. 
my roommate in during my master's made so much fun of me for this because I one day <laughs> came home from the Rice Library with it had to be like at least 30 or 40 books on Buddhism. It was like an itch that I needed to scratch. I knew nothing about Buddhism. I've never been a spiritual religious person. One day I was like, I need to know everything there is to know about Buddhism. I did not read all 40 of those books. Far from it. I did not become a Buddhist. But <laughs> that's sort of like my, <laughs> it's a very sort of like all or nothing approach to things. And he was like, you know, maybe you should like watch some YouTube videos first, see if this is something you're interested in. <laughs> Or read like one book or like read the Wikipedia page on Buddhism. <laughs> and I was like, no, I need 50 books from primary sources, modern authors, exploring every aspect of Buddhism. And <laughs> he made so much fun of me for it. That is really funny. <laughs> but it's also funny because I also have a Buddhist book on my coffee table too. Oh, really? and, and that's actually, it's a whole other story, but that, which is not really relevant. But I think it's funny that I was like, you have a Buddhist yeah. book too? I do too. <laughs> I'm also yeah. not a Buddhist, but I respect the beliefs behind it. Yeah. It is an interesting, interesting way of conceiving the world. So Giancarlo, I have a couple final questions for you. What, in your opinion, is the most common misconception of classical musicians and the classical music world? I think it's tricky because there are a lot of small, harmless misconceptions of a classical musician stereotype that we spend all our time in the practice room, that we maybe don't know any music aside from, you know, symphonies and concertos. But I think for me lately, I'm realizing that, and I think a lot of people are realizing that the biggest misconception and the one that in some ways is most harmful and damaging actually is that there's a conception that classical music can sort of transcend all of our differences and is this universal connector and thus is is sort of immune from the racist and colonialist structures that infect other aspects of our society. And I think it's this way because it's been built this way. You know, it's not an accident that those things have filtered into classical music. And I sure. think there's a misconception and people are starting to sort of pull the curtain aside on this, which is, you know, to a lot of the people who it's been directly affecting for decades and centuries, it's not news. But finally, more broadly, there's starting to be a bit more awareness that these incredibly damaging structures are like inherent in our field as well. We're not immune from that. And of course, I believe in some ways that music is, you know, a connector of people and there are certain boundaries that I think it can transcend. But I think we also have to be aware of the side of things that who has been left out of the discussion, who has not had a seat at the table and being aware that that's just as present in classical music as in other parts of society. And in some ways, because a lot of it is really under the surface and really ingrained that it's even more insidious. Yeah, I mean, that's a really important nuance to talk about and to clarify. That's, I think, a really great answer. You're totally right that it's confusing because it is kind of masked under this ideal of how music is yeah, limitless, the universal language. But yet, from what stories are we really telling, are we really showing? You know, how often are we telling the same story over and over and over again? Representation but is key. I think it makes sense that it's obviously this there are broad cultural conversations going on about these sort of topics. Just like with classical music, it's not really news that this is, oh, suddenly classical music is racist. It's like, no, that's not really what's happening here. But like having the curtain pulled aside, and I think there's hopefully starting to be a push towards really being intentional about how we go about programming, how we go about access, how we go about, you know, what the boards of major orchestras look like, who's making the big decisions. More importantly, who's being left out of the big decisions who really shouldn't be left out. Totally. It's, yeah. 
big stuff, I guess. But yeah, and I mean, I think part of it as well is knowing that we don't really all have the answers right now, right. and that this is the process of change. This is the process of trying to make a better classical music world in the future for ourselves and our future generations of our students and their students. So 2020 is such a pivotal year for I think the world, but especially in classical music, it's like dust that's been needing to be right, de-dusted. Right. I don't know what's yeah. Swiffer. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if you feel this way too, but I feel like really lucky to be sort of a young early career musician right now because in a lot of ways it's like if young musicians and people who are beginning careers are asking these questions, it's really like our responsibility not just to ask these questions of ourselves, but I think also be in a position of holding institutions and collaborators and the systems at large accountable in the small ways that we can. You know, it's maybe I can't single-handedly change the way X orchestra programs. But I think we not only have to be in the mindset of what can I do in my own musical life, but what can I also do to sort of influence and in small ways and just listen and learn too, which I think is something people are hopefully doing a lot of right now and just really working together in all aspects of the field to try to have these discussions and have more than just a one-off conversation about it on a panel discussion and then sort of slip back into programming all nine Beethoven symphonies every season. Nice. Great answer. (laughs) Thanks. And the final question. After all the impact that COVID has done to classical music, what do you think is something positive that will enhance and carry on in our profession? Two things. One related to what I was just talking about is that it's not unrelated from COVID, but it's not X equals Y related to COVID. But I think the fact that these conversations are happening at a moment when the world is in crisis is not a coincidence. COVID is an event that has spurred a lot. So I think the fact that those conversations are happening is really important. And then I think the other thing, which is just on a more local and practical level is that I've just been like so constantly inspired by like what my colleagues are doing. The imagination that organizations and individuals and chamber groups and stuff have risen to the occasion and like done a lot of actually really cool stuff. Like at the beginning, I feel like there was this moment where two or three weeks into it, I was like, oh my God, if I have to watch another like four square video or whatever, I'm going to like delete Facebook or whatever. But yeah. and like I, my quartet made <laughs> some of those too. It was like, yeah, but we there all was did. A, yeah, right. That was sort of the easiest way to adapt and I think I saw some really cool things come out of that but I think once the initial like saturation of us all being like oh my god we need to go online happened it was actually really interesting and like after that first wave settled to see like in the following months what really creative you know, not that there wasn't creativity at the beginning, but people really started, you know, we were like, oh, we're in this for the long haul, we really better think outside the box. And I've just seen really cool things happen. Yeah, we're seeing the resilience of a lot of these organizations and musical groups figure out how to still maintain maybe an online presence, but something that is more interactive. Yeah, I mean, the audience is so essential. And it's like, I don't know, I've interest in talking to friends who have started playing again together, you know, other quartets and stuff. I feel like there are, there are these two phases. There's like a moment where it's like, oh, I'm playing in the same room with other people for the first time since COVID. And that's a moment. But then also almost an even bigger moment is like, oh, there are people listening and like, you know, there's an audience. And as that starts to happen with, you know, small gatherings and stuff, I think that's what has been, I, I haven't done it yet, but that's what has been very meaningful for a lot of my colleagues that I've talked to. Yeah, I guess I have done some small socially distanced concerts. Everyone was mad 
masked. People were sitting six feet away from each other. The whole bit, everything was yeah. provided, you know. And I think what I gained from the audience, every time I played for these audiences, they were so happy that we were there. And I think it was the fact that we removed yet one more screen in front of them. Because yeah. they're probably on their computer for their jobs. But right. to actually be in person, even if we are distanced and everything, I think for them, it was like returning back to a state of normalcy. Right. Just for the span of an hour, you know? Yeah. So was there anything else? I know I kind of elaborated on your answer. Was there any other part of that that you wanted to add? No, I think no, I think that's I mean, I I'm just looking forward to sort of seeing what it feels like to sort of be with audience members again, whenever that may be. But yeah. Okay, John Carlo, is there anything you want to plug anywhere that we can find you find more content about your music making and your compositions? Yes, my website is JohnCarloLatta.com. And I've also been thinking of making like a quarantine book list, which I might put on my website. So like a book club. So you're going to start the like book, a club. book club. Maybe, but I won't be involved in it. I'm just going to put the list <laughs> and then everybody's like free as a bird. <laughs> you can just like have at it. Okay. And uh, ArgusQuartet.com. A-R-G-U-S? Yes. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe and leave, hopefully, a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It helps this podcast reach more people and it makes me feel kind of good. You can also give feedback at our email hideinmusicstand at gmail.com if there's something you'd like to suggest or just say hi. Sharing with your friends and family is a free way to support this podcast and if you'd like, you can also visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hideinmusicstand. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter all at hideinmusicstand to access more content. Thanks for being on the show, GC. Thanks for having me. It was fun. <laughs> and thanks for listening. Yay. Sushi, say bye. And with me is John Carlo. Oh, shit. <laughs> and with me is John Carlo Lat. <laughs> Latta, right? Yeah. Okay. Why is this so hard? John Carlo. It's really. Don't, don't. This could be the funny story. Say, say. <laughs>